The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Today, the Supreme Court ruled in an insider trading case for the first time in 20 years. The result? A unanimous ruling that bolsters the power of prosecutors. At issue was whether people can be sent to prison for making trades even when the insider, the person who provided the tip, wasn't looking to make any money. The Supreme Court said it's enough if the insider made a gift of information to a friend or relative knowing that person was likely to make a trade. The ruling changes the law in a part of the country that's quite important when it comes to insider trading, Wall Street. It reverses part of a 2014 federal appeals court decision from New York that had said the insider needed to receive at least some concrete benefit. That ruling undercut U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara's eight-year crackdown and led to more than a dozen insider convictions being thrown out. With us today to talk about this ruling are Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University, and Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Peter, um, why don't we just start? Just give us the facts of this case. This is not uh, one of those big Wall Street cases that uh, everyone has been uh, talking about so much. No, I mean, this case uh, came out of California. You had uh, one brother um, in the case worked uh, as an investment banker doing health care deals, and he told um, his brother, who he was very close to, and the government showed that at trial, he gave his brother information about impending deals, essentially to help his brother out. Now, um, one brother was going to get married, and um, his new wife's brother was the defendant in this case, uh, Mr. Salman, and Mr. Salman got the information and then traded on it, knowing that it came from the brother. And so the, the core issue in the case was, did the one brother have to give any tangible benefit, uh, something almost pecuniary, to the other brother, or was the warm and fuzzy feeling that a relative gets when giving a gift to another relative, was that enough to establish insider trading? And the court said the warm and fuzzy feeling can be enough. Bob, so did the Supreme Court basically go back to its own decision in 1983 in Dirks to make this ruling, not really changing the law? That's right. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, in fact, you guys might remember when you had Peter and I on before, uh, on the day that the oral arguments were held this autumn, uh, we both noted that really this law was settled long ago by the Dirks decision, uh, and there wasn't any appreciable distinction, it seems to us, between the facts of this case uh, and those of Dirks. Um, and so we predicted that the uh, Supreme Court would come out in favor of the prosecutors here, that it would overturn the Second Circuit decision. And I believe we even both predicted that it would be unanimous, uh, which in fact it was. Uh, to sort of top we're going all to have to check off, our. We're going to have to check the tapes on that. 
Yeah, yeah. And to, well, to, to top that off, uh, Justice Alito uh, actually said, just direct, quite directly, that Dirks itself suffices to settle this case. Uh, the one minor correction I would add, maybe, is I, I think that we're really talking about a relation between a brother and a brother-in-law here, rather than between two brothers. Um, but the, but the, the basic principle is the same. We're basically talking about uh, a case where you know I have inside information, privileged information, in virtue of my position. I pass it along to you. As my sister-in-law, let's say in this case, then you and I do so in, in anticipation that you'll trade on that information in order to, to make money on the basis of this kind of privileged access to information that you now have indirectly via me. Um, and the question is, are you yourself engaged in a form of insider trading that has been known since Dirk, as uh, at the least uh, since uh, or at the latest as uh, Tippy uh, trading? Um, so again, this this was the law of the land across the nation until 2014. The Second Circuit decision was an extreme outlier, as I believe both Peter and I noted this this autumn when we were on with you guys, um, and that was what was unusual. And all the Supreme Court has done today is to sort of restore the status quo ante. Um, and, and, and again, it's worth noting again that everybody was very surprised by the Newman decision handed down by the Second Circuit in 2014. So it's scarcely surprising that the Supreme Court has set the record straight and put things back to where they were uh, in 2014. Uh, June, I want to go on the record as saying I did not predict this would be a unanimous decision, although the arguments uh, certainly did suggest that the uh, government was going to win. Um, Peter, let's talk about the the Second Circuit, because that is one place where this decision does uh, change the law. How much does it change the the law? What will be different there? Well, I I don't think it changes the law all that much, uh, except that it it makes – the prosecutor's job a little bit easier. Uh, you saw in a case that came after Newman uh, against a defendant by the name of Sean Stewart, in which the government uh, showed that he gave information to his father who traded on it and gave it to someone else to trade. And in order to meet that Newman benefit requirement, the government uh, introduced evidence that the father bought or paid for the photographer at his son's wedding. And you look at that and you go, how is that some kind of special benefit for inside information? That kind of evidence is no longer necessary. The, The parental relationship can be enough, even friendship. Uh, can be enough, has to be close enough so that it generates that kind of uh, gift that the Supreme Court talked about. So it it will be a little bit easier for prosecutors in uh, New York City, where a lot of these cases are brought. But it, it, it does not get rid of the other part of Newman, which is also important. The government has to show that the tippy knows that the tipper received a benefit. And of course, for remote tippies, people down the chain, that can be hard to prove sometimes. And in fact, the defendants in the Newman case are in the exact same position they were before, um, even though part of that case effectively got reversed. So, Bob, does this mean that part of the the law in the Second Circuit is different in some respects from the law in the Ninth Circuit? Well, um, the only way to make that really clear would be to have another case come along um, where the facts sort of differ uh, enough from the original fact pattern that, that was underlying the Dirk's decision in 1983 uh, to sort of give the court occasion uh, to determine whether Dirk's itself has to be sort of fine-tuned um, and whether, you know, uh, the Second Circuit has sort of fine-tuned it in one way while the rest of the, the nation or the other circuits have, have fine-tuned it in another way. But as things currently stand, the Supreme Court seems to be telling us 
essentially the, the law that Dirks itself gave us as of 1983 is still in place, and that is the law then of the Second Circuit. It's the law of every every circuit uh, in, in the nation. Um, I would note maybe sort of further in addition, sort of uh, playing off of uh, Peter's observation, um, that the, the the idea that some kind of benefit has to be anticipated by the tipper, him or herself, is pretty well established even in Dirks. And so the only real question is, what are the precise contours, or the precise sort of boundaries of you know what counts as, a, as, the, as the requisite uh, benefit? We're talking today with law professors Peter Henning of Wayne State University and Robert Hockett of Cornell University about the Supreme Court's insider trader trading ruling today. Uh, Bob, uh, we were talking earlier about the, the knowledge requirement that the Supreme Court didn't address in this ruling. In the arguments, um, I think the government suggested that wasn't an especially big burden for the government to, to show. Um, briefly, do you think the government is right on that that point? Yeah, I, I think it is right. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's a terribly difficult thing to show, primarily because the kind of um, the kind of gain, the question about what kind of gain the tipper expects to receive through the tip itself very much covers the kind of knowledge that would be involved here or the kind of knowledge that we would expect the tippy uh, to have. So, for example, if you are my brother and I give you insider information that I have by virtue of my status as an insider, it's probably likely, I mean, it seems overwhelmingly likely, in fact, that I'm expecting that you're going to be trading on it and that you yourself are going to kind of know that that's why I'm giving you the information. If, on the other hand, you're simply some person in the subway who overhears me tipping off my brother who is sitting Sitting next to me, and then you go and trade on the information. Well, of course, you know. I mean, it's pretty easy. I think there to show that. Well, there's not going to be tippy liability uh, available, right? Because I have not directly conferred that benefit on you. And in a certain sense, then the knowledge question takes care of itself, because I don't even indirectly gain uh, by um, uh, speaking to my brother in a manner that you then, in, you know, inadvertently or accidentally overhear. Um, so, I, yeah. So I don't think there's going to be any real fundamental change. In the law here um, relative to what it was uh, between 1983 and 2014. Peter, some convicted inside traders have been watching this case to see if a decision would help them to overturn their convictions. So where does it leave people like Matthew Martoma and Rajat Gupta? Uh, I think, uh, well, they're on the inside looking out, I guess, to the extent that uh, for Mr. Martoma, who's currently in a federal correctional institution, uh, he had tried to argue that the government hadn't met the Newman requirement of a tangible benefit. Well, that's gone now. And so probably the greatest impediment to affirming his conviction has been taking a, taken away. Similarly for uh, Mr. Gupta, trying to have the conviction overturned, it's going to be very difficult because Again, that tangible benefit requirement is gone. So uh, those cases are, are likely to be victories for the government and continue the trend of having uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District rack up a number of wins. Bob, how about going forward? Uh, would you anticipate we'll see a renewed crackdown out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think at the very least, um, uh, U.S. attorneys here in the Second Circuit are going to be sort of reinvigorated uh, or reassured that, yes, the law, as they thought it to be uh, as of 2014, really is still the law. And it was the Numa decision out of the Second Circuit in 2014 that was the outlier here, it was an aberration, a kind of anomaly 
Uh, it's now been uh, effectively erased, I think, uh, for all practical purposes uh, going forward. And I think that should indeed constitute significant encouragement to uh, Pre Barrara and other uh, U.S. attorneys, especially here in the Second Circuit, to sort of proceed in the way that they were in you know, kind of cracking down on the, the recent rash uh, of, of, of corruption that uh, seems to be, uh, you know, sort of coming to public attention over the last uh, five years or so. Peter, uh, is that your take as well? Do you think uh, uh, we'll see a, a new crack, a renewed crackdown? Uh, I agree with Bob that I think um, the the U.S. Attorney's Office and certainly Mr. Barrara's office said that they were hesitant because of Newman, and there was some talk in the, when the SEC brought charges against Leon Cooperman that the U.S. Attorney's Office backed off from that case because of concerns about Newman. Um, now, whether that case ever gets brought is a different issue, but Newman is no longer a concern. And so I do think that there is that measure of reassurance, and uh, the U.S. Attorney's offices, the Justice Department is going to push forward now, uh, knowing that they can bring these kind of tippy cases. I want to thank our guests. Bob Hockett of Cornell University and Peter Henning of Wayne State University talking about the first insider trading ruling from the Supreme Court in 20 years. Coming up, we will talk about uh, a, a mistrial in a case of a South Carolina police officer who shot a black man in the back and killed him. A mistrial in that case. That's coming up here on Bloomberg Law. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.